All right, I'm Dave Cates, President and CEO of Denison Mines Corp. We're uh, listed on the TSX under the symbol DML and on the NYSE American under the symbol DNN. Uh, Denison is a uranium development and exploration company focused in the Athabasca Basin region of northern Saskatchewan. Our flagship asset is the Wheeler River Project. Uh, we have a 95% effective interest and it is the largest undeveloped uranium project in the eastern portion of the Athabasca Basin. We've had some very exciting results recently. Uh, with our work to de-risk the in-situ recovery mining method. Uh, this will be the first um, mine to use uh, in-situ recovery in the Athabasca Basin region. And happy to be here for an exciting update. Dave, good to have you aboard. Um, thanks thanks for um, joining us for the conversation today. Look, I've got to ask, we've known each other, what, two, two, two and a half years in the context of Denison, um, 1.2 million market cap, well done. However, how do you possibly justify that valuation given you are so far away from actually making money? Matt, straight to the hard-hitting questions on, on market cap and uh, and the business. Well, look, yeah, we, our market cap's in the range uh, 1.2, 1.5 billion. Um, we, we're really getting actually quite close to a development decision. And so if you were asking that question, say two or three years ago, might have been a bit of a different answer. Uh, but but today we've really come uh, much closer to making a development decision on Wheeler and Phoenix, and and ultimately what we're doing is de-risking our company's net asset value. Now we we do have many uh, analysts that are covering us from a number of reputable investment banks uh, in Canada and the United States. So we're not really the ones uh, saying that we've got a market cap or a value in that range. Uh, but what I can say is that the consensus of that group says we're trading at a significant discount to that NAV. And our job is really to keep on de-risking the project and getting us closer to actually being in production. And we've been doing that over the last several years and had great success uh, to the point where we're now within a year of completing a feasibility study for our Phoenix ISR project, which is part of Wheeler River. And that really will then put us on the fast track to a development decision construction and ultimately production. Okay, well, help me with this because you know, look, bankers will say whatever you, they, well, not what you want, whatever that it takes to get uh, in your good books because when you raise money, they want to be raising the money for you. They're, going, they're after fees, right? That's, the, that's their model. I want you to break down for me where the value lies. So you're talking about OSR, um, the recoveries um, recently. We'll talk about that in a second. But if we, if we look at all the moving parts, all the variables which have value on your on your uh, balance sheet. What are they, and where where do you think the value actually lies today? Um, and how do we get to the point where you start monetizing these? Well, look, Matt. I mean, the we do have uh, a breadth of research coverage, and not all of those guys are are getting paid by us. Uh, we, we can't pay them all, but we do have. Uh, pretty clear consensus that we are trading at a significant discount to what they're projecting as our NAV. Now, if I look at their details and I look at our own internal models of this, it's, it's for sure that the biggest driver is the Wheeler River project. And this is our flagship. It is the largest undeveloped uranium project in the eastern portion of the Athabasca Basin. We have a 2018 pre-feasibility study that sets out our basis for declaring reserves. So this project has reserves that have been declared on it. Uh, and, and NPVs associated with the return on that. Now, we've been de-risking that over the last three years to add even further confidence to those estimates of reserves in economics through a bunch of field tests that we've run, primarily focused on use of in-situ recovery as a mining method at Phoenix. But 
also just on refining and updating our cost estimates so that we can produce a new feasibility study uh, in the first half of next year, which will really refresh all of those numbers that go into those NAVs and allow for the analysts to price uh, the company. Now, we are not a single project company, and that's where it becomes very interesting. We have a strategic 22.5% interest in the McLean Lake Mill. This is an operating licensed uh, processing facility that right now is toll milling all of the production from the Cigar Lake mine. It has excess license capacity today, and we've recently had uh, an expansion of the tailings facility approved by our provincial and federal regulators. So this mill is a hugely strategic asset for the region that we have a strategic interest in, and it has quite a long runway. Add on to that, and of course it's not easy for these analysts to cover us because we do have many pieces, our development portfolio beyond Wheeler River. We have a 67% interest in Waterbury Lake, where we have the THT deposit, also uh, considered as an ISR mine uh, with a PEA on it for economics. And then we've got what I would consider our, our lesser known or unsung projects, like our minority interests in McLean Lake, not just a mill, but undeveloped uranium deposits there. Uh, we have successfully tested a mining method with Arano, our partner, called Sabre for the extraction of uranium from surface uh, at McLean North. We actually produced uh, uranium last year from a mining test uh, at, at McLean North. And then pivot over to Midwest, which is also a minority interest for us with Arano. This is a project that already has an improved, uh, approved environmental impact statement as an open pit mine. We're now re reimagining this project and improve the economics together with Arano, considering both Sabre mining and ISR at Midwest. So I could go on because we do have a, a large portfolio of projects, but those are the ones that really will drive our valuation in those analyst NAVs. Right, okay, so, so, so that's your de the defense for you in terms of how the market plays out is the portfolio of assets and how you bring those through or how you, how you attribute value to each of those moving on into the future. For the today bit, it's a tough market out there, right? Obviously, we're we're, we're sort of seeing, you know, a, 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 well, actually, exactly. Here's a great story. We had a CEO come on last week, meant to interview him, didn't interview him because he was feeling slightly depressed. He'd gone from his PA to his PFS, and you know, he tells me his costs had much, much, much increased, and he wasn't uh, sure whether or not the whole thing was going to work out. How how do you how do you look at something like that? Because you're in a price environment which doesn't kind of work for uranium at the moment, sort of that kind of low, low, low 50s uh, state. You guys, CEOs, seem to be saying, like, we need 65, 75 to kind of incentivize us to move forward. I know you kind of got a very low, low uh, cost base and you kind of, you're, you know, low, lower quartile, but how, how do you kind of make investment calls in that kind of environment? Or is it still a waiting game for you? Well, look, I could understand how that would be, uh, you know, a tough, tough thing to think about uh, with certain projects. You have to remember for us, we, we, we've been advancing Wheeler River for the last three years and things were darker three years ago. Okay. We, we, we had a project that had robust economics at $29 uranium. That's the price we used for our first pound sold at Phoenix in our PFS from 2018. Okay. We have low cost profile owing to the mining method with Phoenix. 
and using ISR. And so we've already made that decision to deploy capital three years ago. Uranium price is up, but this the fact that we've been advancing over the last three years is really now one of our strategic advantages. Because you're right, there are companies that are out there seeing price has improved, but really it doesn't change what I'm gonna do with my marginal development asset. We've already had that confidence. We've already made that decision. We were already making money at $29. Now look, cost inflation is definitely gonna be a real thing. For us, we're blessed with low CapEx because of the mining method. We're blessed with low OpEx because of the mining method. So absolutely there will be cost inflation that gets evaluated in the feasibility study. But when you're operating and your overall margin is so wide, that inflation is obviously affecting our selling price too. That's why price has gone from 29 to 50. Will we see that margin on our costs, which are that much smaller? No. And so at the end of the day, this project is looking like it'll be positive, the passage of time in terms of the economics. And it won't be that case where really inflation has outpaced the commodity and the project is struggling. We're, we're expecting to be in even better position to make the development decision now than we were three years ago when we made the decision to deploy capital. And Matt, it's the other assets too, because that narrative has been positive for the other assets as well. I'm excited with the work we've done at Phoenix to de-risk ISR. I'm excited to get back into Waterbury and look at THT. And I'm really excited with what we're doing at Midwest right now, looking at that deposit for ISR. Those things are opening up in part because the market is better but in part because we're not being affected by inflation given our mining method selection. Right. Well, so talk to me, talk to me about talk to me a little bit more about that future that you, you see. Because when I get big production company, I know you're not a producer, but when you get big producers coming on here, I kind of don't care about the admin of mining. I get they've been mining for a while, they're good at mining. What I want to know is that there's going to be consistent and sort of steady growth in terms of the output and, uh, and growth in terms of the margin, et cetera. So for development companies, it's a slightly different game. This is why I'm really strong on asking companies about their business plans and their strategies for delivering their business plans and the team who are going to deliver that strategy into that business plan. So for, for you guys, you kind of obviously focus on, on uh, Wheeler River it makes makes a lot of makes a lot of sense. And you're talking about you know, the McLean Lake, uranium mill, etc., and Waterbury Lake, etc. You know, it's it's all kind of good stuff. What weighting do you put on all of this? Because you can't, despite having as much money in the bank as you do at the moment, you can't do all of this stuff all at once because you're delivering into quite a small market with in an opaque market with players that seem very reluctant to tell anyone how their decision making in terms of the, the buying patterns, etc. And I, I don't want to have the conversation about the uranium thesis. It, I think uranium uh, investors are, are into it. They understand it. I'm more interested in how you, you insert yourself into that space and when, because there are a lot of players in this space who are never going to produce a pound. So what, what, what's the big thing for you that you, you're focused on? Well, look, I mean, we're, we are obviously bullish on the uranium price. Um, and we do think there's, there's quite a tailwind for the uranium sector, given the climate change narrative and global acceptance around nuclear power being necessary for climate change objectives. Um, all that said, we are probably one of the most cautious groups in the industry. Uh, we, we really have focused on how we think the market might actually evolve. For example, we've been cognizant that 
the world's largest and highest grade uranium mine had been shut for the last several years. We've been cognizant that the Kazakhs had reduced their rate of production over the last several years, and that those sources of supply would come back to the market, and that those sources of supply would likely author a higher price, which they have, you know, being curtailed, they, they did author a higher price, but they would also create resistance. And we've also seen that happen, where price has moved up from 30 to 50, and now we're seeing resistance at 50. Now, all of that to say that we've designed our business strategy around that happening. We're looking to be a supplier once Cameco and Kazatomprom have met the sort of incumbent preference of customers. And at some point, their businesses will be exposed for not having the next up asset, for not having uh, production at a reasonable price or anywhere in a reasonable timeline to meet even more demand. And that's where we're designed to slide in. We can be competitive. Uh, and compete with Kazatomprom and Cameco. So we don't need to wait for the price to just perk its head above a certain level and then go sign contracts. We don't need to do that uh, because we can compete if the price doesn't go up higher. But at the same time, we'd love to be that marginal supplier that has a viable project where customers can buy from us when they realize that the cupboards are bare from Cameco and Kazatomprom. Now, our scale fits really well with that. We're talking about 6 million pounds a year from Phoenix. That's not excessive. That doesn't swamp the market. It makes us a meaningful producer, but it doesn't affect the supply-demand dynamics. Even if you add something like a Waterbury THT on, you know, this is in the range of 10 million pounds over six years. So it becomes comparable to one of the larger U.S. ISR assets just at a much lower cost profile because of the high grades. And so we can tack that on when the time is right. And all of our plans have been deliberate in that we're not jamming everything out the door at the front end. Phoenix is the first deposit at Wheeler River. It's going to generate immense cash flow. We would then intend to deploy that into the Griffin deposit, which is the second deposit at Wheeler River. So actually staging that development so that the pounds from Griffin get the capital that's funded by Phoenix, reducing dilution to our shareholders. And then those pounds come into the market a little bit further out, but perhaps at a time where we can actually realize a better price or have contracts that support that project. So it's very deliberate and it's not at all sort of the um, junior mining playbook of jam everything at, a, at up, a, up front, uh, you know, big capex, big production to have a, the highest NPV on paper. This is small capex up front with Phoenix using ISR generate immense cash flows to fund the next wave of development into the longer-term uranium cycle. Okay. The thing that interests me about your company is that some of the strategic moves you've made over the last two years, um, in terms of you know, buying, buying pounds, raising money at the right time, um, coming in on the, on the, uh, the, the Japanese uh, deal when, when you did. You've made some great strategic moves. It's the kind of commerciality bit that intrigues me going forward and how how much of now, now that i think you've you've kind of got uh, the canadian iron wall going up and chinese companies being told to uh, extricate themselves from lithium companies and goodness knows what next um how do you politically insert yourself into the north american ecosystem i get being listed over there is helpful but what conversations are happening for you strategically well, Matt, a lot of that stuff's coming to us rather than us chasing it. 
Uh, we, we've done an excellent job of having a very calm, steady story around Wheeler River amongst the future customers, so the, the nuclear utilities. And it, it almost perplexes them uh, a little bit because a number of the players out there that say have very high cost production, they, they are shopping to get that contract that gives them that margin that turns their mining project into a bit of a bond. Uh, and but, but they sort of need to do that because if they don't get that certainty, then, then they really can't justify advancement. Now, we've been taking much more of a passive approach because we don't, we don't need that contract to, to advance the project. And that's what's curious is that with that approach of us not going and banging down doors with, with utilities, we're actually getting a great deal of interest from the utilities, many of which are, are US-based utilities or European-based utilities that are turning uh, and looking at their, their book for, for future um, yeah, uh, production and, and their purchase commitments. And they're saying, where can I get more Canadian uranium? And of course, Cameco is out there, no doubt, negotiating hard. And we've seen Cameco have great success signing contracts. But all of these customers would love to have a contract with with more than one Canadian producer. And we really can feel that. So that story is, is coming to us more than us taking it uh, to the utilities. And, and I find that to be a very powerful bit of market intel that, that we're collecting ourselves, that there really is an interest in Canadian production. Right. I think that that's been the case for a while, and that's that's kind of the more generic side of it. I'm more intrigued by government to government. I'm intrigued. We're hearing stories, more stories of uh, U.S. financial efforts talking to companies saying, "If any of your product is going to China, you're not getting any money from us." Um, we're seeing departments of defense and departments of energy reaching out to companies and saying, "We need you to sell down here." Utilities have been around and they, they, they make their own decisions, but is, is there, I'm trying to, trying to work out how these markets are evolving because the normal rules have not applied for the last two years on a, in a number of commodities. And I just wonder what is there sort of changing ground swell with, within uranium and, you know, what conversations you've been party to? Well, uranium's always been um, carefully watched, right? So in, in Canada, we've had restrictions on who can own. Um, you know, uh, uranium mining projects and, and to what extent. And, and that's been in place for some time. Look, I, I don't know that I would say there's any level of government to government discussion uh, that, that, that we're seeing outside of what's in the broader media around the Canadian government wanting to support its, its global partners with critical minerals. Uh, they have talked about fast tracking the development of certain mining projects. We're trying to learn more about that. That would be very interesting to us to understand if uranium mining projects are, are what the government's thinking about. And I don't see why it wouldn't be now that the Canadian government really has uh, publicly come out in favor of nuclear energy. And this is a bit of an aside, but I mean, they, they have now put their money where their mouth is on that. And they've committed about a billion dollars to uh, the development of the country's first SMR at the Darlington site, which is in Ontario, not too far from where I am here, um, with OPG. So we are seeing the Canadian government come out much stronger on nuclear energy, and that is very positive broadly. Uh, in terms of, you know, whether we see particular agreements on uranium, nothing materializing yet. But, but I will say, you know, those U.S. utilities, they are very influential, I mean, you think about the Section 232 uh, fiasco, let's call it, that uh, took the uranium market and sidetracked it for... They were right, though. 
it was a fiasco, but it, they were right. You know, they, they weren't wrong about the threat from, uh, from, from other parts of the world, but they maybe weren't right about a meaningful way to de-risk it. And the point being is that the U.S. utilities uh, were really reluctant to that resolution because they knew that the U.S. uranium producers could not actually meet their needs in any substantive way. And so you have to wonder about the politics of all of this and whether the utilities really are that influential in U.S. politics to the point where we haven't seen sanctions even today on, on Russian uranium supplies and where we never saw the quota develop that they were looking for out of Section 232. Because those utilities know that they need uranium from outside the United States. Yeah, well, let, let, yeah, let, let, let's not go political here because I, 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 I think <laughs> we're in change. Yeah, there, there, there's some things got sanctioned and some other things which would have turned the lights off, which did not get sanctioned. So um, yeah. on the rich uranium side, I think it'll be a long time before um, anything happens there. But, 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 but focus on, again, you, you make an interesting point. The U, and you made it twice in this conversation, the U.S., producers are unlikely to get anywhere near the level of production required um, even if they you know do sort out they call it enrichment issue um, needed to supply their country so Canada's obviously the, the, the nearest um, partner you know fr friendly 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 government I just I just was intrigued as to say how can you take advantage of that you know we've seen it in other in, in other metals um, certainly on the battery side, that the government is stepping in. Um, they are going upstream um, and they're putting putting money where their mouth is and they're making money available through funding. We've seen some big statements from, uh, I think even in the the um, NEI um, in London in September, I think it was, or the WNA in September, it, it, it basically, the US government representative saying, we need to double um, the the output uh, by twenty, you know, by twenty twenty thirty, it's 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 just it's just not enough. Not, it's not enough. They know that. So, you, Canada would be the natural partner. And I just wonder how do you get involved? Albeit not in a kind of two three two as a sort of adversarial kind of way, and it was really protesting kind of way. I don't necessarily think the the tone was right, but the conversation, the nature of the actual conversation, was important to have to raise the awareness. So, do do you? Does the Canadian government need to kind of up its game there and say, well, obviously, we're the obvious partners, but however, we need a little bit of cash? Or because you're rolling in cash at the moment, do you not really care? No, Matt, look, I mean, this is very interesting. Um, you know, I, I would say this initially, that um, Canadian uranium has been flowing to the United States freely for some time. And, and it's not like this is something that is um, in question. It's, it's good business for, for Canada to sell to our partners and, and neighbors in the United States, they, they, and it's good business for them to buy it from Canada, right? There's many things that are de-risked by buying the uranium from Canada. And the reality is there's no feasible way, well, there's not even like a remote chance kind of feasible way that the U.S. domestic production would ever meet, um, you know, U.S. utility needs. But what makes this very interesting, and, and maybe it's quite timely to, uh, to our discussion today, but um, it's seeing an announcement from Cameco that talks about a large new supply contract with CNNC. And so what will be interesting is to see how that news plays out in, in the market that you're talking about. This, this development with lithium projects and um, uh, basically uh, the government demanding that foreign owners, primarily Chinese foreign owners, 
exit those companies, that's very fresh. And now layer in, uh, you know, within two weeks of that large supply contract uh, between Cameco and CNNC, I'm going to follow it. I don't know that I have more intel in terms of how people are going to process that. But I think we should all follow whether that uh, results in any sort of meaningful feedback. Now, reality is, is the Chinese are going to be one of the largest, if not the largest, consumer of uranium globally. And so they probably are an important trade partner for any of the countries that have uranium production. It does drive, though, to your question of at what point do which governments get uncomfortable with that? And are any steps taken to make sure that there's adequate supplies to the U.S.? I would say there probably isn't a risk that there won't be adequate supplies to the U.S. in the grand scheme of it. And that that may make it a non, uh, you know, non-issue, but it's definitely worth following because there is a lot of attention right now on investments from China. There, there is. And it's, it's really, um, we're, we're sort of heading to with that question, and maybe today's not the time to a- ask it or answer it, is around, you know, bifurcated markets, which we're sort of seeing lots of conversation around. And they can happen in multiple ways in terms of, um, you know, you know ta- taxes or incentives um, or premiums being put on products from, from certain, certain jurisdictions, et cetera. And I just wondered, you know, in terms of European, uh, so uranium, which has always been so very geopolitical um, commodity and, and topic, um, as to what that would mean for African uranium producers, what that would mean for North American uranium producers, uh, and it's only part of the the journey, and the you know needs, the enrichment processes needs to be sorted out as well here. But it, that, I think that's one that I'd look to in the future because different in those kind of bifurcated markets could could there be this massive step change in the in the, in the pricing um, or does it just slowly kind of creep, creep up as some of the trade bodies seem to think I'm intrigued I'm intrigued yeah, I don't think we're that far from finding out um, you know the, the the bifurcation is happening uh, particularly around Russia obviously and and the, what I would call the Russian sphere of influence type countries. Uh, the, there is no doubt greater apprehension around um, taking significant supplies from countries that may be more susceptible to Russian influence. That that's always been on the radar uh, for for fuel buyers, but but heightened uh, absolutely uh, post Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now to see China, uh, you know, continuing to supply, uh, sign supply contracts with with companies like Cameco, and of course the logical thing for Cameco to do, but. Uh, you know, you of course see China lining up on side with Kazakhstan and Russia when it comes to uh, a bifurcation of, of the uranium market. And here you have now a large contract uh, that involves Canadian uranium. So I think there are a lot of pieces on this game board right now that could cause some concern uh, if you were a Western, you know, or American European utility in terms of, well, how much of that chemical production that I was maybe thinking I would see um, is now going to China. And I can only then take that the logical next step to be an upshot for a company like Denison to realize that uh, new production from the Athabasca Basin might be something that's very useful for de-risking that part of the equation. Right. One final one, just around money, okay, where we've seen a few companies being the beneficiary of, of in, in, in the market, you know, the equities, let's, let's move sideways this year because it's just been, been a tough year since March-ish, but they've seen that, that um, uptick before that. 
you've got a, you've got a bunch of cash. Cash gives you optionality because the optionality in terms of where you spend it, how you spend it, how quickly you spend it, and to what end you're spending it. Um, have you changed your strategies or reined back in in some areas and, and I've got focused on others as a result of what you're saying? Because the problem with uranium, it, it's been a very difficult thing to time. You know, talk about timing markets. You, you've also got to time the market because you don't want to run out of cash, right? So has anything evolved in terms of your thinking this year as a result of how it's played out? Well, um yeah, uh, we, we have been looking at the big picture uh, from a financial standpoint. And look, we have uh, a lot of opportunities and options available to us thanks to our two and a half million pounds of physical uranium. Right. So th that call uh, to buy that material is sub $30 price. Now we're sitting at a roughly $50 price. Um, you know, we're, we're in the money on that. And, and the intention was to give us the financial stability to be able to continue to advance Wheeler River regardless of the noise that we might see in the market. We also topped up our treasury and we've been doing a very good job of selectively using our at the market facility to add capital when the capital is comparatively cheap. So, you know, at the end of the third quarter, we're on $55 million of cash, but around $225 million Canadian in cash and investments, including that physical uranium. So what we've done uh, is we have actually been committing to our future spending around Wheeler River. And we're committing to the de-risking process, completing the feasibility study. And now we're actually looking forward to which other projects deserve capital based on the great success we've had proving up the ISR mining method. Because we do see a great return from our shareholders coming from unlocking value in our other projects, adding more reserves to our reserves and resources equation by bringing other projects forward. And so with that strong balance sheet, uh, investors can expect that we'll continue to be dynamic and we'll continue to add value to the assets because we are not uh, beholden to being in the market to be able to keep moving. We have a very stable balance sheet and allows us to focus on the long term. Right. Okay. So I guess the, I, the, I guess the long poles in the tent for you around the environmental impact, which you've, um, well, last month submitted, um, and any kind of First Nations issues and any any other complaints from NGOs or interference from the Canadian government. Is that? Well, okay? look, I mean, the, uh, I mean, Matt, the, the question around the EIS, we, we've been hugely successful in, in the work we've done uh, to, to prove up our environmental profile for this project. And the, the terminology we use is to describe the environmental footprint and the environmental sustainability of the project is superior. Uh, the, it's something that the mining method has brought forward that the other mining methods, conventional mining methods, simply can't. Um, you know, in situ recovery, just the footprint of that mining method, uh, it's, it's, it's just tangibly smaller. Uh, in terms of both physical footprint and lasting uh, impacts or effects. We will generate no conventional uranium tailings. That is a, a, a difference maker when it comes to this sphere. And it's a difference maker with our regulators. It's a difference maker with our interested parties, okay? And that includes the indigenous groups. We're getting great support uh, with the work we're doing on the mining method. The 
de-risking of the mining method has also been important for all of those parties to see with our field testing, that we're able to actually advance the mining method, that it works, that we can proceed with neutralization and ultimately reclamation. All of these things are happening and we're showing that um, what we've said we can do, we are doing and able to do. So that's, that's putting us in good shape for um, the regulatory side and as well as the indigenous relations side. Look, we are, we are negotiating um, what I would call impact benefit type agreements um, around Wheeler River. We've taken a slightly different approach where we started with, um, call them introductory agreements around our pre-development activities. So we have now signed three different exploration agreements with three different indigenous groups. We have overlapping uh, type interests in the region. It's not just one Athabasca Basin and, and one First Nation. Uh, we have we have different groups and and we've signed three agreements, which means that we're able to uh, reach terms that are not just broadly ex accepted by by one group but by multiple groups. And those agreements have given us great confidence and stability to advance the project until we get to a production or development decision. So we have certainty around permitting. That's part of why we were able to permit the field feasibility test, where we actually put. Uh, you know, acidic mining solution into the ground this 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 fall. Um, but these agreements are giving us a basis to form trusting, durable relationships, which we are then looking to leverage into impact benefit type agreements that further de-risk Phoenix in particular. Right. Okay. So back to the first question, which was, given your valuation by by the market at the moment, is there any upside? to people coming in new to this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, number one, there's obviously uranium market upside. Number two, uh, we've got um, tremendous de-risking results ahead of us. So we have, res we have released the initial results from our feasibility field test of the ISR mining method at Phoenix, but we've got more results to come. And, and in, in fairness, the market does factor in a level of discount to our valuation because of the fact that we're advancing ISR mining as a first in the Athabasca Basin. Every step we take to de-risk that continues to make our story and our valuation and those NAVs that much closer to being realized by the market. Uh, at the same time, we've got that feasibility study planned for the first half of next year that's a significant catalyst for our investors. IBAs that can de-risk the project, and then of course the other assets. So we are a catalyst and news-rich story, and I do believe that there's a tremendous amount of re-rate potential in our stock as we ultimately work towards development and then production, right? Investors that maybe aren't as familiar with the space, they might want to spend some time looking at the way a producer gets valued versus a developer. Of course, some people might be familiar with the whole uh, Lassonde curve or the mining life cycle curve. We are on that bottom of that, of that trough, climbing up to realize our full potential as a producer. That re-rate really does offer the greatest torque for investors, particularly in an environment where you do have uh, a rising price expectation for our commodity. So the, the fundamental value from us is around re-rate from developer to producer. And the de-risking is important because that has to be realistic that we actually will do that. And that goes back to one of your earlier comments about 
well, projects that have been on the books forever and still are going nowhere and they still aren't anywhere close to the price that they need and inflation is just going to lift that price and maybe they'll never get developed. Well, that is a real risk for a number of companies in our industry. We're not that company and we really are positioned to be able to give that developer to producer re-rate. Well, well, that's what I'm looking for, right? I, I, is lots of companies get through the development phase and just never make it over the line. I'm interested in companies that get close to making money, mm-hmm. right? And Adam ha- and 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 having a margin which allows them to actually become profitable, be a real bit. I'm kind of old school like that. I kind of like making actual money and less storytelling. Yeah. And you're kind of in that last. Yeah. You know, the last yards there where you're moving towards that point. And that's what intrigues me about your story and continues to actually. What's the biggest barrier usually when that company is in that development place? It's often financing, okay? Well, the cost of capital, right? Right. So look, look at our story. We've got uh, initial CapEx for Phoenix is in the range of 320 million Canadian from our 2018 PFS. We've already got $224 million Canadian in investments and cash on the balance sheet. So the risk of swamping our existing shareholders with equity with a high cost of capital is comparatively much lower than if you were to look at a company that had a half billion or a billion or a billion and a half capex to go, right, with $50 million on the balance sheet. Okay? So it is a notable difference for us that we are approaching that development construction phase with a very strong balance sheet, with a very low cost uh, asset with the ability perhaps to add on, uh, you know, low cost of capital to actually take it to production, right? A lot of that's being driven by the economics on those margins, right? We just have significant operating margins that will make our project attractive to other sources of capital without necessarily having to go and raise a massive amount of equity. So again, that Developer to producer re-rate, definitely people should look at the multiple differences of a producer versus developer, but then they got to look at how does the company get from developer to producer and what's the cost of that capital to get there. And I'm confident to say that our story is probably better positioned than any other in our sector for the cost of capital to achieve that re-rate. 